We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Na. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we have a very special podcast for you, a very special recording. Uh, Normally, we try to talk about somewhat frivolous things here, but through somewhat of a serious lens. But today, um, we are uh, uh, very aware um, and very involved in um, serious business that's happening uh, throughout our country. Uh, It was uh, present uh, in our last recording when we recorded about uh, The Last Dance, but we had already... um, plan to record that episode. So we, we did it anyway, uh, even though we were in the midst of a uh, national reckoning over racial injustice uh, even then. Uh, and, uh, and the conversation is uh, such an indelible part of the culture and so important um, that we felt like we uh, wanted to talk about it and address it in a uniquely pop Torah way. Um, and so we, we have a, a special guest with us today, uh, that uh, Jesse is going to introduce for us. We are thrilled to have April Baskin join us for this episode of the pod. Um, we, Mike and I last uh, learned uh, from April at a Join for Justice conference. Uh, April is the principal of Joyous Justice Consulting, uh, where she focuses on uh, highly customized life coaching and diversity consulting, she also serves as the Racial Justice Director of the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable and is the immediate past Vice President of Audacious Hospitality for the Union for Reform Judaism. What's up, April? Thanks for joining us. Woo-hoo, it's so good to be here. I kept wanting to like whoop or do like air horn my crappy rendition of a Jamaican air horn, but I didn't because I didn't want to enter our sound quality, but um, I'm very excited to be here and it's an honor to join you on your podcast. Thank you, we're so uh, grateful and uh, so looking forward to really amplifying uh, your Torah and and your message that that you are going to share with us. So let's get it going and and kick it off. I guess uh, as blunt as possible, um, what can the (laughs) Jewish community be doing right now um, to take a stand against systemic racism that is at the core, really intertwined in the fabric of the founding of our country. Great. Oh my goodness. So there's so many things that can be said. To me, I think the most important thing I would say, two juicy opinions, you know, but is to, if for the members of our community who have been really stimulated and jolted by this moment and realized things in a different way and realized things that maybe they didn't understand before and that this is a really critical issue, that the most important thing I would say right now is to decide right now to make an, a long, an ongoing commitment, even if you don't yet fully know what that looks like, but to set a kavanah, an intention 
and saying, moving forward, I want to be a Jew who increasingly, step-by-step, actively engages in anti-racism work. And by that, I mean some people listening to this podcast may be hip and know, get the nuances of what I said, and for those who aren't, that's totally fine. But um, scholar and racial justice leader Ibram Kendi uh, wrote a book about how to be anti-racist. And in that book, he, along with other acclaimed scholars over the years, articulate that it's not enough to simply be non-racist. But in the context of our specific country and the history this country has around profoundly entrenched racism, that people need to actually be proactively anti-racist in order to, to engage in this work in a meaningful and impactful way. Um, so that's first and foremost uh, to me in this moment. It's a, a very emotional time for me right now um, and intense because I have been doing this work now for almost 18 years um, in a deep and meaningful way uh, in terms of beginning by doing starting nationally organizing toward the later end of my college years um, is uh, it's, it's just this intense moment. I don't want to take too long on talking about this, but because I have been praying in some ways for an opening like this and right now for a number of Jewish leaders of color, it's a deluge. Like it's far more and even like the far more than we can handle or for the infrastructure that we have. And even normally the people I refer to, they're also um, drowning and maybe not as much of a response. And so for me, I have this moment where I want to lean into abundance, but part of me also at least temporarily panics. And I'm saying, so I say this from the deepest place of my heart, like if you're looking for resources to engage from the outset, normally this is something you say at the end, but I just want to say this from go, or you're looking for people or you're reaching for people, please keep reaching. Um, some folks are just like me and we have been literally praying for this moment for years and we are, I am working overtime. I can't speak for others. I am working overtime with three coaches right now to figure out how I can scaffold my organization and my body of work in order to respond to this moment. And so as I think we'll get into in the conversation, there are a number of things that people can look at now and engage with now that can help them in this moment, begin to meaningfully engage in it, but please make a commitment that while moving forward, it might not be as acute as it is now, that, that you fold it into your ongoing Jewish values for a number of reasons, because it aligns with other Jewish values that we have fundamentally around B'Tselem Elohim, the belief that we are all made in the image of the divine, um, as well as just a sociological understanding of our people that I encourage when I teach which is that we are, it helps, I encourage white Ashkenazi Jews to, from a place of humility and wholeness, to begin to see themselves as a member of a multiracial people. And so that doesn't mean that white Ashkenazi Jews necessarily have the same stake in it as people of color, but more maybe than they were thinking before. Um, so there's a lot more I could say, a couple other things that I would toss in. Um, one is that there is um, an educational document that was recently released that I think is brilliant and that I think a number of people might know about. So 
cool that we get to mention it on this podcast is a couple of my Jews of Color colleagues and leaders in our field um, who um, haven't traditionally had as big of a profile on the Jewish diversity front, except for one of them, as I have wrote, uh, created a website and an open letter called notfreetodesist.org. And as Jewish leaders of color, they've created a petition um, that I just love in so many ways that very clearly lays out a number of asks, the first of which I'll name, and I'll, I won't go into the depth, is say the words Black Lives Matter that encourages people in the Jewish community to say those words um, and to feel comfortable with that. And if you're not ready, it's not saying doing it overnight. Um, and one thing that I'll point to people to help them navigate what I believe is a visionary and brilliant document. I'm thrilled about it because as a consultant and DEI expert, um, to me, this is very complementary to all my work and it gives me material that I can immediately use in different educational and facilitative ways with the clients with whom I work institutionally and individually. Um, but just to help people navigate the site in the FAQs, I love it because it so aligns with my leadership model around having a very bold, open letter that says, we really want you to go for these different goals in the next one to three years. And then you, but then you see if you go into the FAQs, they have questions like, we're a small organization. We don't think we can hit these goals. And it says, we're so glad that you're here and you're engaging in this conversation and we're excited to be in relationship with you around it. And to me, in some ways, it models some of the best elements of Jews of Color leadership, where at times I'm speaking broadly, this isn't true of everyone, but in my experience and the experience of some of the folks I lead and I've, I've mentored and trained and also from whom I've learned, is that we have a rigor, we consistently have a rigor around the work and also as people who are a part of multiple communities, a lot of compassion. So I encourage people to use it and to refer to it depending upon if you're in a position of power, to maybe really consider are there some things here? And, and for others, as a, guide, as a guide for thinking through different things. Um, the last thing I'll say on this point is that uh, I am beginning, I want I'm continuing and also beginning a new program, but I haven't released yet, so I'll just kind of allude to it here, where I'll be working with what Ashkenazi Jews around some of these conversations, and I plan on this, um, or I'm considering, I have a partner in it, so I have to run it by them, but I'm considering using this as a source of something for people to use almost as a text study and be in conversation around this and think through, what do these different asks mean um, to folks? So, so that's some of what I would say to get started. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's so much there. And I, I, I want to uh, follow up maybe with, um, with, with a kind of two-part question. The first is, um, in that answer, there, there was both some internal work and, and external work uh, for the Jewish community. So um, let me just ask one kind of follow-up on the, on the external piece, um, which is, you know, I think that, uh, that, that some uh, Jewish institutions, uh, some segments of the Jewish community um, are, um, are, are wary even of making the statement that Black Lives Matter uh, because of their, you know, because of uh, um, uh, its perceived divisiveness in some, uh, in some corners of, uh, of, of the population. Um, and, and all the more so to get, you know, sort of off the sidelines and involved in the, um, in the work of, um, 
political advocacy um, to you know change systems that are in infected by racism and uh, manifest uh, in, in profoundly um, racially unjust ways. Um, and, and so I'm wondering if you have thoughts um, or, or, or words for Jewish communities that are either debating whether to get involved in the political arena on these issues or are you know uh, very much uh, uh, hesitant to get involved in the political arena on these issues. Oh, that's such a loaded question. I'm trying to think of the best way to answer it. And honestly, you answer it, you asking me that question also it reminded me of a totally unrelated point that I wanted to name. But um, but first let me be, try to be supportive and answer what you yes. asked. Right. But so so but the first thing I'll say is that it's that's I'm gonna answer it a little atypically and say yes. Um, yes, there are a lot of politics. That are involved in this. Um, I think some of that in some ways is tied to America's dysfunctional history around this topic. Because part of me, which I know is not the case, says, but is still true, that ideally on some level this shouldn't be political <laughs> to say, right, and I, under I understand all the, all the different, right, but that a part of me is like, um, to say that Black Lives Matter, or in some other, I, you know, we don't, I don't think we would currently have a, a Jewish version, but if there was some Jewish version of that, you know, that, that I don't know what it would be, Jews are sacred, something that doesn't Never again. But, right, never again, right? Like, the, the, that, yes, there are politics involved in that, but some of that is tied, not all of it, but some of that is tied to systemic oppression, and it's, and it's interwoven and it's messy and it's hard to disentangle it. Here's what I would say in some ways. And I was thinking about this the other night and I would be careful about this places where I talk about this, but um, just like there is some serious discord and disagreement within our own Jewish community, but yet if, if there were officers of the state or even another group that were coming and killing our people, that I hope even if there were parts of our community that I deeply disagree with, that people would still come forth and say, we see your humanity as a people, and none of the disagreement we have justifies you being murdered in the streets. Um, that's the simple version. And then the last thing I would say that does begin to get into some of the politics without saying too much, as someone who's a little bit, not a ton, but a little bit insider information, what I would say is that the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement for Black Lives more broadly, one, that those are two, they get interchanged within the Jewish community, but those are actually two very distinctive things. And saying Black Lives Matter is like naming a particular Jewish institution. And then there's a whole broader field. And what I will say is that um, it's not known to the public, just like in some of the ways that certain deep divisions and profound disagreements within the Jewish community aren't known to the public, um, but there is not consensus around some sensitive issues. And, and there was actually a lot of internal strife um, when the platform was originally released about the movement for black lives. Um, and for Jews of color, a number of us um, who identify as Zionists um, still also, even if there was something that was concerning in it, still it was, 
It was and remains a really revolutionary document in a lot of ways. Um, and we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. What I continually come back to in this work is that it's so important that within, certain, within reason, if there was a group that was like murderously against us, okay, maybe not, but that is not the case here right now, that as much as possible, it's so important that we show up to the table, um, just as we do in our own community at times, and the times we also totally don't, and people split shuls, and I'm not saying that it's also rosy in our part of <laughs> the room either, but, but that as much as possible, especially because a core way that anti-Semitism operates is to isolate Jews. So both in service of helping other communities and also in our own self-interest, it's important that we organize and have our allies and that we have support and also that we show up to the table and that we not conflate presence and proximity with agreement. Because that in any day, it's really important that we come to the table and continue to be in relationship and to listen. Um, and I thought this was going to be the last thing, but the last, last thing I'll say about this is having been on a panel a few years back with a mentor of mine, whose name I don't feel, because I haven't checked in with him, but I don't feel comfortable naming him, but um, a very respected reverend, black reverend within the Christian community in, in his given city. Um, there, there's just, there's a lot of, because I'm talking about it without naming it. Which, so some people are like, what is she even talking about? And people know exactly what I'm talking about. But um, because uh, of a faction within the broader movement for black lives that is vocal, has a very strong um, and perhaps even overly strong or unfair critique of the state of Israel, some people condemn the entire movement. And what I would say is that's not reflective of the entire movement. Most of my black family feels like Black Lives Matter represents them. And I need to touch base with them, but I don't, some of my, a lot of, some of my family, a lot of my family doesn't even have an opinion, like they're not even paying attention to international politics in general. And as this reverend shared, that a lot of people in black churches, but there's a mixture of views. So I also don't want to discount the people who do, that, who do have that belief, but there are also a lot of black people who feel profoundly representative, represented by Black Lives Matter, who don't even have an opinion on this. And, the call to prayer in my neighborhood is the cue for me to mute and wait for your next question. Yeah, we should say, we should thank you, uh, which we did not say at the beginning, because uh, April is actually joining us from Senegal. Um, and uh, it's, it's nice. It, it speaks to, right, this message that we're trying to put out there, that we celebrate diversity, that, that when we're talking as a group of Jews, we hear the call to prayer uh, in, in the background. Um, <laughs> But, but I, I want to dig deeper, not just the, the issue of um, uh, the movement for Black Lives and putting that aside. How do we, uh, as the organized Jewish community, which uh, Mike and I hardly represent, we only represent uh, the institutions where we serve and we barely represent them. Right, right, that's, right, right. that's questionable, yeah. <laughs> but but um, <laughs> how do we make sure that when the organized Jewish community is, is even declaring Black Lives Matter, we also aren't doing so um, as a way of saying we stand with um, the, the uh, black community, we stand with people of color, or we stand as allies, uh, because my biggest concern is that also ostracizes uh, the Jewish community of color, which has for far too long been on the periphery as it is, and that's just whitewashing the Jewish community, which we're trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. 
right? So I find that, that in general, this isn't a fix-all all the time, but that one adaptive, this is a particularly long call to prayer. Normally it's stopped by now, but I think it's particularly fervent. We need yeah. a lot of prayer today. We need a lot of exactly. prayer. We do. We do. Yeah. So here, here. He, he writes on. So maybe that's what we think get better. So, okay. So, um, right. So I, like a quick fix, but there also there's a lot of work that's needed. So like, it's a both and here of I'm, I'm, I'm all, I'm down for having quick tweaks and also for doing the work that needs to be done is that I really find this phrase that I mentioned earlier can be very helpful around things like this. That's saying one, so there's two parts I would say to make it not so easy. Let me not make this overly easy and then set people up and they're like, April said this and then they get yelled at by Jesus in their community. So let me clarify. One is that saying, um, one is as much as possible, if leaders are in a community where there are Jews of color, if you aren't already in relationship with those folks, to do some, um, oh, this is messy. <laughs> okay, so um, how can I, Here's how I can answer this. And I think in the best way that streamlines multiple thoughts all into one is going back to what I named earlier about framing this as our community being a multiracial community and beginning to live into all that that means. So this isn't necessarily a quick fix for right now, but what it's saying is if you are a member of a multiracial Jewish community, it's probably, it's, it, it, it probably, and I think it is absolutely worthwhile for one to invest in learning more about what that means and, and begin to really think and first just begin with reflection around an, an, an internal audit around how does that sit within my different beliefs? If I filter that through my lived experience, what does that then mean if I'm a member of a multiracial Jewish community? Does that then begin to compel me more deeply to show up in this moment? in a way, to show up for people within my own community, that I have a deeper, more intimate stake in this conversation than perhaps I realized that when almost a fifth of our community, which most people don't even realize is, or is either, so it's between 12 and 15% and with numbers like the, with the continually increasing, which is both in terms of the actual numbers of Jews of color increasing, but also as we reduce racial bias, in our research, then Jews magically appear when we begin asking in places where we haven't asked before. It's an amazing thing. Um, <laughs> so, so, um, so that's one response. And then this finally, the other thing that I wanted to name that, was that I mentioned earlier that I still haven't mentioned among all the things that I've mentioned is I want to reference, I'm not going to remember it exactly. So maybe you can find it, is there is this glorious um, resolution from the Religious Action Center from the 1960s that is still, and it needs a little bit of revising, but it's still pretty applicable today. And I know a number of my former colleagues at the URJ often lovingly say, oh yes, the 1960s resolutions. But basically what it says is this amazingly powerful piece that I literally a few years ago read it with a fellow Jew of color. I read it aloud and my, my friend Koaf, um, KB Frazier was like, yep, our ancestors knew. And I was like, yeah, they did. Some of them are still probably alive since not that long ago, but yes, 
<laughs> and, and what it says in this amazing resolution is, I keep saying revolution or, or resolute, anyway. So is that- uh, or Maybe both. What was that? Maybe both. Right, 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 God willing. So um, in the resolution it says, we as a Jewish community, we have been deep, something along the lines of we've been deeply engaged in this civil rights work. We recently attended this conference around racial justice and had and learned a lot from it. And what we realized is before we can go out and do this work in the world, we need to follow the Jewish injunction of being accountable in our own home. And we need to review our synagogue policies. And if there is segregation on the books, we need to shift that. And, and if there is racism or, or we have people in our community who are mistreating black people or in today's language, people of color, but also black people and people of color, that we need to work on that. And so I think that that is also a piece of this, is that as we think about doing work in the world, recognizing that one of the best ways we can do that is by starting in our quote unquote own proverbial house or metaphorical house or tent or Abrahamic tent. And, and, um, and engage in that harder work of looking at ourselves and being in deeper conversation with skilled, trained professionals, ideally who not only hold an effective lens and analysis around racism, um, but also anti-Semitism and can be in conversation about the ways that those two issues have been completely intertwined throughout history, which is part of the reason why I think at times members of the Jewish community, of the mainstream Jewish community, is, in my opinion, and in, in the opinion of some other folks, I'm going to say something that may be agitational, so people be prepared, don't misunderstand me here, that, that a number of DEI professionals in the field, maybe not all, but a number of us think, estimate that the Jewish community as a whole is about 10 to 20 years behind the broader racial justice community, and, um, and that has nothing to do with our values, and that has nothing to do with actually how many, proportionally how many Jews are engaged in the work of racial justice, because there actually are a number. So that's not, I'm not, don't take that to mean more than I'm, what, I, what I'm saying, but what I think part of the reason why that is, is because when the racial justice movement was happening um, and taking place, this is not the only reason, I think that there wasn't an analysis that accounted for anti-Semitism, and that Jews who were engaged in the work got left behind um, and at times perhaps got miscategorized because people didn't have an analysis around anti-Semitism. It's a very unique and complicated form of oppression. Um, and so if at all possible in this work, and if that's not possible, it's okay, but you can also just be in conversation with a diversity or diversity equity inclusion um, consultant and let them know that we do want rigor around racial justice. And there's also intersecting dynamics around collective trauma that we don't want to use as an excuse but we also don't want to ignore it otherwise people will feel unseen and it can be triggering right so important um i, I want to switch gears uh a little bit uh and uh and kind of talk about uh uh what's what's the phrase in the inyana dioma uh the, the the sort of um uh, central questions uh, that we that we think about on this podcast, which, like I said before, you know, is generally silliness that we try to uh, think about seriously. You know, so we talk about like, you know, what does Batman mean Jewishly and things like that. Um, so I want to ask a pop culture question, and and this may be um, this this your your frame of reference for this may be um, uh, intriguing because you're not in the U.S. right now. 
Um, so I'm, I'm curious to know what the pop culture landscape is like in Senegal too. But I'm, um, I, I thought about this uh, the other day as I was uh, uh, touring, I'm in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and so we're, we're having um, so much of the same reckoning that's happening around the country, but in particular being the former capital of the Confederacy, we're having that has, that we are just littered with lost cause iconography. Um, people are having, you know, very important and meaningful conversations about um, about those statues, about those monuments, uh, and uh, and uh, it's looking like, even though it's being contested, it's looking like they're going to be removed. But the monuments themselves have become kind of these now gathering places for people in the movement uh, for racial justice to, to to meet and to talk and to mourn and to reclaim power over those things. And I saw on the uh, Jefferson Davis monument, uh, which is nearby me. Uh, this graffiti, I'm going to show it on my screen share, even though this is a podcast, but just so people can see it. Um, you can see uh, the graffiti there, Who Watches the Watchmen on the Jefferson Davis Monument, which is an allusion, of course, to uh, the graphic novel and now uh, in the movie and now uh, uh, HBO series uh, Watchmen. Which we uh, spent uh, a lot of time focusing on, actually, on a previous episode of yes, the pod. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Maybe worth revisiting, too, in this moment. Um, but that, which is, I think, in this case, an allusion to um, uh, reckoning about uh, uh, policing in this country. And it got me thinking about the role of pop culture in this moment and then, you know, in movement spaces in general. I'm wondering if you can reflect on that at all. Like, what, what do you see as the, the, the rightful role that art, that pop culture can play in, in this particular moment? How do you see that playing out? And, and um, is there a way it could be doing a better job? <sighs> I love this question. And I'm someone who is, um, maybe in some ways as much as I like, but a consumer of pop culture, one of my like side fantasies is that I would like, I often want to write essays about different things that I see and then I see other people do it and I'm busy with other things. Like when Beyonce comes out with something or somebody comes out with something and as you know, both for my academic sense and my social movement leadership space, I'm like, oh, do people even realize the double entendre and the sort of the implication of this different thing? And, um, and so I don't have in the way that I would want right now, a fully formed, brilliant response to you. And also as this continues to evolve, like, you know, at some point, maybe I'll message you both later and be like, oh, there's this really interesting thing. Like, let me at least feed this to you because, like, I just had this click. So I don't have anything, like, that's, like, radiantly brilliant at the moment, with, like, in the ways that I would like to for this answer. Um, not that I thought my other answers were radiantly brilliant, but I'm wanting because that's what you put your podcast. Don't sell yourself were. short. They yeah, were. they were. They were. <laughs> Thank you. But, but you know, but I'm, I'm wanting to have something. But what I would say is that... Um, I think it's like, I'm, 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 right now I'm just one, I think so many of us, like I, I've named what I'm experiencing somewhat of a deluge and I think to varying degrees, that's in part what a lot of people in this precise moment with the combination of COVID-19 and then just processing the media around all of this. So I think we're still having noted that there may be some brilliant thing I could be saying, right? Like what, what comes up for me from a place of sincerity is that I feel like this, this isn't fully true, but to some extent, maybe I'm overly projecting that 
like me, a number of leaders in this field right now, there's so much stuff happening right now that a lot of us are, are still cycling through this moment and trying to get our bearing and to even to people who typically both lead from a place of being in the present moment and also sitting on the proverbial balcony or being at the 30,000 foot view. Like that's something I've been struggling with in my relationships with folks over the last couple of weeks where there's so much happening and different connections around even pop culture. People have reached out to me in the media. I was honored to receive a contact from a producer at BBC recently who was like, I would love to potentially partner with you on some things, right? Like, I've, but there's so much happening that, so I'm just noticing a convergence of different things that what I would say is that what I'm seeing right now, and I keep talking about this and even more so now, is that there's a lot of tilling of, of metaphorical soil right now. And I'm seeing like Colin Kaepernick being lifted up right now in this moment where both people who either were upset with him before are now seeing like, oh, I get it, and are now kneeling. Like people in the Jewish community who may have, technically may have opposed him before are now are now are now a few years later kneeling and and um and and other folks are there's just a lot of different pieces and I, I feel like when this when this movement this right now this is a moment of I think of a continuation of different movements that are converging or earlier iterations of the movement. Um, where we didn't initially have music, but now there's these different pieces that are feeding us in different ways, like Beyonce's Lemonade album, um, and um, uh, you know, and Childish Gambino's uh, "This Is America" song, where, where we're seeing different iconography. I'm seeing iconography from some of those, either those artists or specifically those videos being referenced in this moment. Mm -hmm. And I think a number of us are in the midst of perhaps going back to the drawing board. As a former executive of the URJ, I think I would be remiss if I didn't name the album that The Rack produced. I believe it's called Together as One. Um, so I wanted to give a shout out to that, that there's this collective desire, even among Jews and a number of people out in the world, to galvanize around this moment. But one thing that I can say that is a little juicy that I referenced before we started recording that I will bring up now that's something that is giving me life which at this point, like, I feel like it's gaining, gaining more and more and more viral value. And apparently as of now, it's like really helping this woman out who was, who was formerly homeless is there's this video um, that the hashtag is like this amazing long hashtag. that's called um, something like you about to lose your job. Um, that means like you're about to lose your job, but you about to lose your job. Um, and there's this video that for a number of people of color like myself, it's like scary to see this woman being detained by police officers, people who have either themselves witnessed police brutality or have been watching it on the news. And she's handcuffed by this light-skinned black man. And she's like yelling and just really clearly very upset and agitated. We didn't see the scene before. And then out of nowhere, she like screams like, why are you detaining me? And then she starts saying, you about to lose your job. You're about to lose your job. And she was like dancing with her tushy and like moving. And you see eventually the, the police officer security guard like starts to kind of crack up and turn his face uh, so that the camera wouldn't record him. And she keeps at get this dance. And she does this whole thing. And so I would, if some of y'all maybe know exactly what I'm talking about, but you can Google this. And then a, and then a DJ made a whole video of like splicing different black things. And you can actually do a hashtag and like protest and do like, you about to lose your job, protest, and you can find videos that have happened in the last week or two of people dancing in front of law enforcement to this remixed song, you know, this woman, 
in the after, in the, in the, supposedly the subtext being in the aftermath of her knowing that the, the four officers out of Minneapolis were fired, it, those who were in connection with, with the killing of George Floyd, with the death of George Floyd. Um, and so there's this like little sparkle of accountability and hope that still a number of black people are still holding our breath because we've seen moments like this before, but we also notice that this is a new moment and we're not sure yet with the number of white people who have begun to also get involved, if it's going to make the difference or not, if they're going to stay committed, which is what I started with in this call and stay with us through the long haul. But um, that's one thing that I'm seeing. And I, what I would say is that my sense is that there is more that is going to be coming forth in the weeks and months or a year or so, but we, specifically weeks and months ahead as people um, maybe producing material now that hasn't come out yet. You know, I, I sort of wonder as Hulu and Amazon Prime and Netflix all sort of collated their Black Lives Matter collections. Right, um, right, that's, yeah. You know, right. is that commercializing um, this movement? Is, is there a positive nature to that? So now uh, the uh, all too white communities can watch Just Mercy uh, and and really understand at least um, through uh, Michael B. Jordan portraying Brian Stevenson the the systemic oppression and racism of the criminal justice system. I, I don't know. Right. I mean, I you know, I a friend mentioned this because her, she, because her Amazon Prime was this way. Right. And I had a whole conversation with her around like, okay, so that's one thing. But also, Jeff Bezos hypothetically has plenty of, of money that some of this could go to actually support some of these different things. And so, but what I do think sociologically is that it's indicative of is that they thought that their audience, so, you know, I can't, I can't judge that company's authenticity around their intention, but it does say to me that it would, that, that, that Amazon and Hulu and other such uh, live streaming providers saw that based upon that their that their audience either literally demanded or that they were going to demand and that they were going to be socially relevant. And that is something to me that, that is something that I, I can say with somewhat confidence, you know, that that, that, that's a, that that indicates something meaningful to me, whether or not that, that those groups that opt their corporations, whether or not they're, they're committed to systemic change, but that it, they're willing to feed people content who are looking for that right now, or, or they have enough of a belief that they think they're looking for it. But do you, can I ask a follow-up to that? Um, sure, because, please. Because, I, because one of the things that uh, has emerged, at, at least in, in Jewish spaces that I've seen as a response to this is, uh, in, as a response to this moment, I mean, is that, you know, is that um, we should, you know, uh, hear more stories from and, and get a better understanding of the experience um, of, uh, of, of uh, uh, black and brown people uh, in this country, and one of the ways of doing that is by, you know, uh, watching films like Just Mercy or Thirteenth, or, or you know, yes. see, like looking at the you know Black Film Canon or book lists or things like that. Is that a is that in your view like a meaningful way for Jews to engage, or is that I mean is that the first step, and then there's steps beyond it? Uh, what would you say about that? That's a great question. So I'm I have a particular perspective that may be different than some leaders. I, I think for me, in some ways, there's a lot that I like about that because I love and have adapted for my own work at, with, with the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable, but I really loved 
the model that the rack put forth. It was created by um, my colleague and friend, Joy Friedman, um, around the sort of like learn, learn about racism, uh, engage in relationships across lines of difference and take action, right? That I think that that order with this issue as well as with some other highly complex sensitive issues is the right order to take time to learn more and to reflect on your own story and do some of your own work so that when, even when you go to take action, you're more informed. So is it complete? No. Would it, would it be ideal if people also sought out online some resources from organizations that are, and articles that are written by Jews of Color or interviews right now that are in Haaretz and JTA and other news sources and Jewish Currents and other news sources that are sharing the narratives of, of Jews of Color and, and listening to the directives that Jews of Color and other people are couple color are providing, that would be even better to hear that and engage in the learning. But um, literally on a, like a professional academic level, I do think that, that watching films and watching films that, that um, are acclaimed and, and help people better understand narratives across lines of difference is uh, very valuable and actually can literally make a quantifiable difference when you measure people's ability to work across lines of difference. Engaging with that kind of material um, can really help. And specifically, if you not only engage with it, but then maybe also have a practice of engaging in conversation with your friends about it to help further that learning, um, to make more of it. But I do think that it, it does, it's not exclusively valuable, but I do think that it can play a very important role in informing people. I would add um, my own personal opinion, as long as it's not a movie like Green Book, right? Which tries to, um, Yes. To use the white savior who saved the the uh, their black friend from oppression, um, because that misses the point entirely. Right, right. So that's an excellent point, and so and which like, can get a little tricky. So I think I think if you look at productions that are produced by respected leaders of color, like Brian Stevenson or Ava DuVernay, or people who have the respect of communities of color. Um, and are serious, like in some ways, I'm not even going to say in some ways, people, black people would be so mad at me, but like, so Tyler Perry, I'm not going to, like, is probably not necessarily the best source of material for understanding race and racism, um, but, but people who have, uh, you know, films like 13th and, and the works of Ava DuVernay and uh, Spike Lee films and films, uh, film producers that have critical acclaim or, or films that are about leaders who are doing impactful work in the world um, are important to prioritize. Awesome. Well, April, we are so grateful um, for you taking the time um, to, and spending time with us. Uh, for this episode of Pop Torah. Um, again, you can contact April uh, and get her involved in your community and uh, have her expertise uh, really be there to influence you and all that you and your community are trying to do. You can reach her at joyousjustice.com. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at joyousjustice. Um, April, any last thoughts, any last words? Um, that I'm so appreciative to have been on this podcast and for people 
to be courageous and to just keep moving forward. And if and when mistakes happen, because they will with any learning journey, to see them as milestones. Um, and, and you may need to apologize, but to keep going um, because this work is worth it and it, we, all, we all need it so desperately. Amen to that. Um, and I would say, you know, I would end with something that you said at the beginning that one of the most important things the Jewish community can do and one of the most simplest things it can do is simply say and declare Black Lives Matter. Yes. Saying those words um, makes such a difference in uh, sharing with the community what we are trying to stand for as a Jewish community. Yes. And the piece about intention and deciding that that you want to be aligned with and that Black Lives Mattering can be a part of your Jewish identity. And you can figure out over time what that means, but deciding that this is something that is a sacred and important and timely cause. Great. Well, we look forward, able to continuing the conversation with you. Uh, and uh, we hope everybody will continue to like uh, and, and comment um, and review our, our podcast. Until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. And keep fighting the holy fights. Amen. As the, they say in the Poor People's Campaign, Reverend Barber says, forward together, not one step back.